Hi, I'm Natalie Banner, Director of Ethics at Genomics England. Today on The G Word, I'll be joined by Dr Nicola Byrne, the National Data Guardian for Health and Social Care. Having been appointed as the National Data Guardian in March 2021, Nicola is responsible for providing independent advice and guidance on the use of health and care data in England. Her role is critical in ensuring that patient data is used in a safe and ethical manner and that the public can have good reason to trust the way their data is handled. Nicola has a 20-year background working in mental health and retains her clinical role as a consultant psychiatrist at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Prior to becoming National Data Guardian, she held positions as the Trust's Deputy Medical Director, Caldecott Guardian and Chief Clinical Information Officer. In this episode, we will be discussing the challenges of data governance in healthcare, people's relationship to their health and care data, the importance of transparency and accountability in how data is used to support better outcomes for health and care. So first of all, Nicola, welcome and thanks very much for joining us today on The G Word. Could you start by telling me a little bit more about the role and how you became the National Data Guardian? Thanks, Natalie. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So the role is a statutory role appointed by the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. And as you say, I act as an independent advisor to government and the health and care system on all matters concerning people's confidential health and care information. So that's all the confidential information we share when we approach services and interact with health and care, whether that's in person, whether online, and it's information that we'd expect to be kept in confidence. And I work through a small office team who are absolutely fantastic and a panel of experts. And we provide advice, guidance and challenge, as I say, to the health and care system to help ensure that systems and processes in place are demonstrably trustworthy in terms of how they manage people's confidential information. And that question of public trust is absolutely central to my mission. And it matters, I think, because I very much subscribe to that vision of improving people's health and care outcomes through better use of data. But to do that, it's absolutely essential that people from all communities feel able to approach health and care when they've got a problem, and then to share some of the most personal information about themselves. And obviously in this context, sitting in Genomics England, mm -hmm. that takes on a whole new layer of significance, I think. So it's absolutely important that people feel that they can share that information and then feel confident that any information they do share is going to be used in ways that are safe, appropriate and ethical, whether that's for their own care or thinking about the benefit of other people in future through research and innovation and planning. Fantastic. And that idea of being able to use health data, both for providing someone's own care, but also to help drive improvements in the healthcare system. So discovery of new treatments, new diagnoses, better understanding the causes of disease. Although those research aspects are absolutely critical. But of course, it can be really difficult to know what the right balance is there, because on the one hand, as you say, people expect their information to be held in confidence and held securely. But on the other hand, some amount of this data does need to be used by a wider group of people, by researchers, whether those are academics, people mm. working in universities, people working in clinical contexts, and indeed sometimes with commercial companies as well. And you've recently produced some guidance to help decision makers navigate that question of how do you get that balance right, particularly around the notion of using data for public benefit. I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit about that guidance and what led to the creation of the guidance you've recently published? 
Yeah, so that is guidance that we produced at the end of last year. And as you say, that's about how do people that are making decisions about data, how do they evaluate public benefit? Because that's a term that we can use a lot, but actually it needs a bit of Mm. digging into. And you'll know yourself well from your involvement in the early work on this that was started with my predecessor, Dame Fiona Caldercott. We really wanted to understand what people meant by that term and what they understood by that term. And the guidance is based on a piece of public dialogue work, which really sought to pour some sort of meaning into that concept. And what we found from working with the public and looking at this is that public benefit is sort of, there's two bits in that term, public benefit. Both words are are doing a bit of work. I mean, in terms of the benefit side Mm -hmm. of things, it was great to hear that the public are ambitious for their data use. They expect it to be used in ways to improve things, whether that's through research and planning. And they've got a very broad, flexible interpretation of what public benefit might mean. So, for example, that might entail just a small group of people with a rare disease benefiting, for example. But benefits can't be established if there's a perception or a concern that the risks of using data are going to greater than the potential benefits, however exciting those might be. We've got a lot of evidence now about what risks matter to people. People obviously are concerned about their privacy but also wider questions about equity and whether data might be used in ways that might further disadvantage, for example, already disadvantaged communities. People have concerns about safety, security, and also, I think you've touched on it already, that the sensitivities around commercial relationships, you know, questions of who might be profiting for data use, for example. So those are all risks that people are very mindful of and want to see organisations sort of credibly engage with. Alongside those risks of using data, I think people are also aware that there's a risk of not using data. Mm-hmm. Future generations will be impoverished in terms of their health if we don't pursue research questions and if we don't plan services better to make sure that we use resources fairly, for example. So I think the benefit is a sort of complex term, a net term, if you like, that takes those sort of benefits and risks into, into consideration. The public bit mm-hmm. of public benefit very much concerns questions of transparency. And I'm not talking about transparency in a legal sense of having to sort of share information about what you're doing. I'm talking about transparency in terms of meaningfully telling people what they need to know and what they can reasonably expect about how their data is going to be used. So to put it in the words of my predecessor, Dame Fiona, no surprises for people about how their data is used. But also the importance of the public actually being involved in decision making, which is a question of sharing power with the public to some extent. And maybe that's something we can get a bit more onto. Absolutely. That question of involvement, meaningful involvement is really interesting and tricky, I find, because data can sometimes be a kind of dry subject. It could be something that people feel is quite abstract and it's a little bit removed from their lives. But then, of course, at the same time, it's an area that can be really controversial and really concern people. You know, they hear about the use of data. They hear about what might be happening to it. It might be something that they're not aware of. They don't feel any agency over. So it seems to be this interesting concept around data, which is either very abstract and far removed or scary. (laughs) How have you found sort of working with and engaging with the public about questions to do with data use? Have you had those experiences as well? Oh, absolutely. And I think actually, it might initially seem an odd combination. But I think being a psychiatrist by background is really helpful to working in this area, because it turns out a lot of feelings Mm -hmm. about data. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to come from a position of understanding that it's not just what data is in any sort of logical sense. It's what it means and represents to people. Mm -hmm. It's what we've got to think about as well. People 
have a relationship with their data that matters. And I think last year we had the government's health and care data strategy, Data Saves Lives, and that was fantastic to see. They did a lot of consultation work in that, and I think they responded to a lot of the feedback myself and others gave. Public trust became central in the final version of that document. It was fantastic to see that the fact that data, there's always human beings behind the data, Mm -hmm. was was recognised. Data isn't just an abstract thing, there's people behind it. But I'd sort of want to stretch that a bit to say that data is not only not abstract, it's not detached. Relationships are very much embedded in every bit of data. And when we think about going right upstream to when data is first collected, when, when a patient or service user sits down with a clinician and decides whether to share information mm-hmm. and whether to fully share accurate information, including perhaps about very sensitive things like, for example, alcohol or substance misuse, it's not only whether they trust that clinician in front of them, and of course that's important, but there are questions about how they relate to and how they see as trustworthy things much further down the line, whether that's the organisation that that clinician's sitting in, perhaps the local system of health and care, or even going up to sort of government, the NHS, all those relationships and how people see themselves in relation to them and how trusting they are matter, I think, in a sort of kind of vertical sense. But then I think there's also those horizontal questions of relationships and data. So where do people see their own data in relation to their families, their Mm -hmm. community, and whether that's a sort of local geographic area or whether that's a community of people they might identify with, such as people with diabetes or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think those sort of wider connections that people feel matter too. And those relationships change over time. I don't think they're static. I think they're two-way. And we can all change our personal investment in data, depending on what's happening. So we might think about data, like you said, in very abstract terms. Mm-hmm. But if we have someone, one of our loved ones, ourselves or our loved one, you know, perhaps develop a rare disease or get treated for a cancer with some new technique that's come, a new medication that's come through research, we might start to feel very personally invested in how data is used, including our own data, how data is used for, for research, much more so than we did mm-hmm. before. So I think all these things are fluid. But the the meaning and the feelings around data, I think, yeah, absolutely key. Mm. That sense of change and flux over time is fascinating. And it makes it very difficult, I suppose, from your perspective, Mm. a statutory position where you are responsible for creating guidance, Mm. for providing advice, which you might think needs to be quite sort of solid and static. How do you accommodate the fact that there are these changing boundaries, changing perceptions, are changing relationships with data, where you might need to say, well, actually, here are some hard and fast rules. But while acknowledging the fact that people's relationship to data might change, their expectations might shift over time, what they want, what they don't want in relation to their data might shift. How do you navigate that in terms of the kind of advice you give and the insights you draw on from your panel? I think it's really important that you take a position of, of what I'm increasingly in my head thinking of keeping it real, that you're yeah. absolutely straight with people. So you're clear with people what you plan that you will and won't do with their data, for example, but you set expectations that will be, that can be future-proofed. You're not going to promise something that you can't actually promise. And I, th- I think the, the area you're working in genomics is, is a, you know, you are in sort of frontier territory of continually the science evolving, what's the art of the possible is evolving. So I think it's about an engagement with the public that's quite mature, that doesn't go for sort of simple statements Mm -hmm. that sound good. I have a problem with anything when I see 
statements that sound fantastic, but they sort of feel more about PR or <laughs> almost sort of performative mm -hmm. virtue, the promises you make to people. I think it's important that you're straight with people and say what you do and don't know. And I think, you know, certainly in this area, we don't know exactly what's going to be possible. We might not be able to tell people who or what organisations will have access to their data under what situations. But you can start to speak straight with people in terms of being clear about how those decisions will be made. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's where it's important to come back to the involvement of the public in that, because some of these questions for the future are so complicated and the ethics of them, I mean, obviously, sitting with you, <laughs> and has got a lead. I will, you know, you'll, you'll speak to this better than I. But I think, kind of, I think, you've got to look for diversity of opinions there. Draw on the sort of public wisdom, if you like. I don't think you can clever your way through this with a few experts, as it were. I think the public absolutely have to be involved in sort of working out what what's acceptable, what feels, and coming back to that word feel, because mm. I think some of these things are very feeling based what feels right for the future. So although you may not be clear about the mechanics of what will or won't happen and what the technology will or won't be able to do or what organisations will or won't access your data, I think you can be clear about how you're going to approach those decision-making processes, mm -hmm. including involving public including coming back to those principles of transparency etc would that make sense you absolutely and that that idea of having that kind of meaningful ongoing involvement is incredibly important i think certainly i've come across situations because the technology that we work with in genomics is complicated i struggle to understand a lot of the technicalities of what we do here and it's absolutely fascinating to learn constantly about bioinformatics genomic interpretation analysis and so on and there is a risk sometimes that we can say it's a bit too hard for people. It's too complicated to engage with people about these questions because, you know, the technology is hard and they wouldn't understand. So, you know, what are we going to get out of it? But I'd really like to pick up on what you just said about the feelings people have about data. What have you seen in your experience that the benefits are of doing that more kind of substantive involvement of people in, in the discussions around data, you, you get something new by talking to mm. members of the public that you don't get if you're just talking to experts. And and what do you make of the argument that some of this stuff to do with data and technology is just, is just too hard for people to get their heads around and, and meaningfully contribute to? I certainly think it's, it's beholden to so all leaders, whether you're a system leader or a researcher, to be able to explain things in terms that do make sense to people. That's not to say, I mean, if it got too technical, I, I shut off. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to know the details. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't grasp them. But I think there are things you can say about what it is you're doing, types of information, what you do know, and also what you don't know, and mm -hmm. what's, what's, what's being explored. So I suppose I certainly wouldn't buy any, it's just too complicated argument. And I think on that question about what do you get out of the engagement with the public? Well, I think you can come out with that with some very clear guardrails that are really helpful to operate within. For example, coming back to that question of commercial mm -hmm. involvement, when we did that public dialogue work, people at the start of that, and I think this has been found in citizen insurers as well, when people start thinking about commercial company involvement, people often have a sort of natural antipathy towards mm -hmm. that. But once the role of a commercial company is explained and there's a clear rationale for it, if people are persuaded that an organisation is demonstrably trustworthy, they feel there's safeguards in place, for example, around technical safeguards, around privacy, for example, 
And if they feel they can see that public benefit is being prioritised over profit, then often people will not only accept that commercial and company involvement, but also be supportive of it because they can see that there are certain things that the public sector simply can't do on its own. And this will drive things forward further and faster. But that is a question of engagement. That's about people giving people information they need to make those decisions. And, you know, obviously we're all different and there is no one public opinion. So I think you have to work within what's it reasonable to say that most people expect. Mm -hmm. There will always be people that don't agree and there will always perhaps be people that remain strongly opposed to any kind of commercial involvement, for example. But I think you need to work on establishing what does a body of public opinion think here? And that body, if you like, absolutely has to involve a sort of diversity of opinion from different groups, people with different backgrounds, people with different ethnicities, people with different perspectives. And also coming back to this point of people with different levels of investment mm -hmm. in these questions from the people that these questions might be quite abstract and they can approach them through a sort of an ideological lens, if you like, to people that are living, breathing, feeling the problems of having their own long-term illness or chronic disease or in their families, et cetera, and will have a huge emotional investment mm -hmm. in things moving faster to improve care and treatment. So I think that diversity of opinion has got to involve that sort of diversity of investment too mm -hmm. in terms of the public sort of that you engage with. Presumably those views will change over time, right? Absolutely. So you can't just sort of one and done approach yeah, to involvement. Yeah. yeah, I think you can engage people with this is where we're at now. But also you're not saying, right, we're going to set something in stone and that's us. We've done our public engagement Tick. work for the next 10 years. We now know what people think. Let's go. I don't think <laughs> you could do that. I think you need to engage people. This is where we're at at the moment. Let's establish what together, because I think, as I say, these questions are too complex and too ethically uh, loaded for any one individual to sort of rule on. But together, we decide that this is where the parameters should be right now. But yes, we're going to have to return to this at X point in time when things change. Mm -hmm. We'll have to have review it. And maybe we'll we'll decide together that we need to change some of those parameters. Because people's views around data use, people's views around privacy, we know these change over time. Mm -hmm. So we've got to keep coming back at sort of sensible time points to address these questions again with people. And speaking of things changing, so much has changed in the health and care system in the last few years in light of COVID. And I think COVID was certainly showed up some of the, the challenges, pitfalls, but also benefits of being able to use data sort of quickly and effectively. The health and care system has changed a lot. We've had the, the merger now between NHSE and NHS Digital. Um, there's a lot of evolution of the health system at the moment. Just for a moment, kind of reflect on your experiences since the pandemic as the mm. National Data Guardian. What do you see as changing in health and care in relation to how data is being used and people's perceptions of it? And when I say people, I, I suppose I mean clinicians just as much as patients. First thing I'd say about COVID is that obviously public, are everybody's data literacy, I'd say, mm -hmm. went up. Mm -hmm. People got much more engaged in data use and they got how data was being used in general terms. But something we learned from that with um, the Stored GPDPR program was that that didn't mean that people were happy with all data uses in health and care from now on. You could, And it, it, it underlined the importance of actually, this is all on a case-by-case -case basis, right? It, it, just because we, we agree and get as a public certain uses in certain contexts doesn't mean that we won't have concerns about other uses in health and care. 
So I think the first thing is to say people understanding data and being engaged with data use in and of itself isn't enough to give social license for its use. Mm -hmm. You have to keep returning to different contexts and different uses and and to check those out with people and see see that not only patients, but also that professionals themselves are confident about how how data is being used. So that's, that's the first thing I'd say about COVID. I think there's a wider question about public trust that we can't disentangle or dissect out public trust in data use within health and care from public trust more generally in in public bodies and how things are run Mm -hmm. across government, for example. I think it's artificial to think that you can just zone in on data use and see those questions outside of that broader sort of social context. And something I've been thinking about, even even in recent months, is how much more the public are engaged with and interested in questions around decision-making and mm. process in public life. I mean, we won't, this isn't really the place to, to get into why that might be the case, but, <laughs> you know, how are decisions made? And, and you know, concerns that, are, what when when might decisions be made? You know, is it, are decisions being made behind closed doors on WhatsApp groups? You know, what are the processes here? So coming back to data, I think that means you've got to establish with the, with the public, not only your sort of an organization's technical competence, coming back to working within the law and also new privacy safeguards and those sort of the technical competence of, of how you're going to manage people's data. The kind of the wisdom and the integrity of the people and the processes around the decision making around it. That, that, no, that those things really matter to people now. And I think people are much more aware of that mm-hmm. too, and much more interested and engaged in. Can that be demonstrated as trustworthy to the public too? Small challenge then. Just a... Small challenge. <laughs> exciting times. That's very right. exciting. It's a, it's a very exciting time. Very to be, exciting time. To be number two NDG. <laughs> I suppose following from that thought about the future and how healthcare systems are evolving, genomics is a really interesting case in point for the use of data because for those who participate with Genomics England, our participants, they've often consented to uh, a clinical test. So they're getting a genetic Mm. test, they're getting whole genome sequencing, Mm. getting a clinical test for a purpose, for example, for diagnosis, but they can sign an additional research consent to allow their data to be used in our National Genomic Research Library and for researchers to, to look at that data to undertake research within our secure environment. That relationship between the provision of clinical care and undertaking of research is a fascinating interface. Mm. And I think in the past, sort of clinical care has felt very separate from research. But it feels like in genomics in particular, the line between clinical care and research is a lot more blurred. And I'm wondering what your um, take is on whether this is a model for the future of healthcare more generally. Do you think that research is going to just become much more part and parcel of uh, of how care is delivered and, and particularly how data is used both will it be in, will it be used more substantively for both clinical care and undertaking research to then improve that care you know we, we have an infinity loop we call it in genomics England, the relationship between care and research do you see that being more widely used across the health system or is genomics particularly unusual in that regard I think genomics may be at the forefront of that, mm. but I'm sure what you find to hold true in this frontier territory <laughs> will hold true for, for wider questions in medicine. And I think that's absolutely true. In the past, there's been these lovely you know, distinctions between clinical care and research, haven't they? And I, I, I think you're, you're right to suggest that those distinctions are just going to break down a little bit and be less meaningful. 
in this terrain particularly, most obviously to begin with, but I think in future as well. And I think there's also the question of, coming back to that relationship question, research a sort of academic, literally an academic exercise that that doesn't have any impact on my own care, but also that relatedness of care and the health of people I care about. And I suppose I was very struck listening to thinking about the relationships between your different podcasts, that recent one <laughs> from, that I thought was absolutely fascinating, your recent podcast with the, the Errol McKellar and Foundation, the Friends mm-hmm. of Caswell Thompson. When I was listening to that, I thought, my goodness, that perspective is, is really, really important. Here are people talking about one particular disease that has had such a massive impact personally within their own community, but also within their own family to have suffered the loss to one type of cancer, to have Mm -hmm. suffered that much loss in one family. I think, again, I can only imagine, but in those shoes, I think I might start to feel much more personally invested in research that might not directly come back Mm -hmm. to impact on me, but I would see it as directly impacting on people within my own family, let alone the communities that that I care about. So yeah, I, I think these questions will get much more complicated and interesting over time. But I think that's that's really, really important. I think these are exactly the things we want to be exploring. And so finally, to wrap up, in your role as this sort of statutory position as the National Data Guardian, what's your main piece of advice for people who are using healthcare or genomic data in their research? I think it would be to make sure you think about and understand people's data within its Sort of relational and social context, not just what the data is, but what it means and represents to people. And therefore, extending on from that to sort of think how you locate what you're doing, your research, within its wider public benefits. So not just in terms of its benefits potentially to individuals whose data you might be using, but to locate it within that wider public benefit to people's communities and indeed future generations. Fantastic. So with that broad scope for thinking towards the future, um, that was Dr. Nicola Byrne, National Data Guardian, discussing the importance of ensuring patient data is used safely and ethically and how the National Data Guardian is working to build that sense of trustworthiness in the use of health and care data. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The G Word on your favourite podcast app. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact us on podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. It just leaves me to thank very much Dr. Nicola Byrne, National Data Guardian, for joining me today. And we'll see you on the next episode of The G Word. Thanks for listening. <laughs>